Welcome to Aletheia Church. We're glad you're here. Um, if this is your first time, here's, here's the deal. We are in part two of a three-part series on marriage and singleness. Last week, uh, we looked at uh, the first half of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and Paul talks uh, very specifically about a few things involving marriage and singleness in there. And so what I said was what we were going to do is do something we don't normally do and, and take a two-week kind of detour just to dive a little bit more into those two topics. And so um, this morning, we are going to talk about marriage. If you need a Bible uh, and you don't own one, we would love to give one. Just raise your hand. That's our free gift to you. No strings attached. We just want you to have the Word of God. And we'll be jumping around in Scripture this morning, so you might find it helpful to have a Bible. Uh, and if you're too ashamed to raise your hand, you can walk to the back and grab one. Um, but th this week, we're going to try to answer this question. What is marriage biblically? What does the Bible have to say about marriage. And then next week, we're going to answer the question, what does the Bible have to say about singleness? And, and what does God have to say about those things? Now, let me go ahead and give a disclaimer. And for those of you guys that have done premarital counseling here at the church before, um, a lot of this is going to be review here this morning. Um, I am deeply, for this sermon, deeply indebted to the work of Tim Keller and his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Highly Highly recommend that book, whether you are married, single, engaged, dating, no matter where you're at in life, highly, highly recommend that book if you've never read it before. And this sermon, in many ways, is, is my attempt to try to condense a lot of what Tim says in depth and more eloquently than I could ever hope to do myself. And so we're, we're going to see kind of a brief overview and work through of that book this morning. But if you walk away this morning after hearing this and you're like, hey, I just want more. I want to know more. I want to be challenged more. I want to understand God's design for marriage more. I would highly recommend you pick up that book for a more in-depth study. All right, so humor me here for a minute. How many of you guys here this morning are already married? And leave your hand up, Okay. So not as many students as we think, right? People always say, oh, Aletheia is just a college church. There are a lot of hands up here this morning. Okay, now leave your hands up for those of you guys who are married. How many of you guys want to be married one day? Yeah, like the four of you, look at, look at yourselves. Now, there you go. You, you are on an island, right? And it's okay, by the way, we're going to talk about that next week. All right, but marriage especially, you can put your hands down, by the way, I'm sorry. <laughs> marriage especially inside of the church, still seems to be a strong cultural value for, for people inside of the church. Um, and and that's, that's a good thing. I'm excited about that. But here's what I would say I've noticed even over the last 10 or 15 years of my own life. Um, I'm seeing that marriage is increasingly having a strong influence on how we perceive and understand the design of marriage and why it exists. And increasingly, um, that view is really becoming disruptive with God's design for marriage and why it exists in the first place. Um, here's just a few facts on kind of culturally where marriage is at in the U.S. And some of you guys are probably going to see this and know this and understand that. But leading indicators are showing that marriage as an institution as a whole in the U.S. is actually on a decline. Um, in, since 1960, the divorce rate has doubled. 
Um, in 1972, uh, 70, 72% of Americans were married. In 2008, only 50% were, and we're now actually below that 50% mark for people that would kind of fit that eligible range. And so marriage, as it's viewed kind of culturally, is not as desired as it was 30 or 40 years ago. People are kind of putting off marriage. They're, they're looking at it as um, you know, something that's negative. And, and there's a number of reasons for its decline in popularity from a sociological perspective. Uh, cultural influences are, are pushing on us. As I explained a couple weeks ago, we are products of the sexual revolution, and that has had a profound impact on the way that we view marriage and intimacy and the need for, for marriage as being a part of that. Um, financial freedom seems to be contributing to this. But as Tim Keller writes in The Meaning of Marriage, and there have been a number of other both sociologists and pastors that have kind of made this um, observation about marriage, he believes and he argues that the most striking reason for the decline of marriage in the U.S. is likely rooted in how our culture understands the purpose of marriage. Right? One of the reasons why marriage can be on the decline is because our perception of what it's supposed to do and what it's supposed to be is outside of God's design for it. Here's what Tim says in one of the earlier chapters of the book. He says, so where did this pessimism, referring to cultural views of marriage as an institution, come from? And why is it so out of touch with reality? Paradoxic paradoxically, it may be that the pessimism comes from a new kind of unrealistic idealism about marriage. Born of a significant shift in our culture's understanding of the purpose of marriage. And so the question we need to ask ourselves, well, what is that shift that Tim and others have been referring to? And let's think for a second, maybe take a 30,000-foot view looking down at our culture and say, well, how does culture seem to define marriage and the purpose of marriage? See, previous generations, going back maybe 50, 60, 100 years ago, for centuries before that, all seemed to carry a pretty consistent cultural ethos of how they viewed the institution of marriage. Marriage was likely a mutually beneficial endeavor that a husband and wife entered into. And not only was it mutually beneficial for both of them from a social standpoint and from a financial standpoint and a spiritual standpoint, but society as a whole also believed that it was good for men and women to get married because it was an act of stepping into maturity in adulthood. And so culture in and of itself actually elevated, especially in the United States, things like tax benefits, things like uh, cultural uh, appropriate um, upward mobility that would occur because society as a whole said, hey, it is better for us to encourage this institution for the good of society. And from just a practical standpoint, 
We were predominantly agrarian until about 130 years ago. Guess what's free labor on a farm? Kids. Well, guess how you get kids? You get married, at least then, right? And so you would have these, uh, you had this predominantly agrarian society that viewed together collectively, hey, marriage as an institution is good for everyone, and practically, it gives us free labor for roughly 15 to 16 years. As our kids grow and help participate in the chores and the things that are done on the farm so that we can continue to provide for our own family, but also to the greater community around us because we're farmers. And something occurred a couple hundred years ago. Some, those of you guys that are historians or you've studied history and enjoy this, a period of time uh, in Europe called the Enlightenment. And what came out of that time period is that there started being a lot of questions asked about whether collectivism was actually good or not. And studies like psychology came out of that and a number of other things. But what predominantly came out of the Enlightenment was society moved from a collectivist view to an individualistic view, especially in the West, of which our society predominantly is. And so things like self-fulfillment and self-actualization became the chief motivators for us, right? Society a couple hundred years ago would have seen collectively an entire community growing and building up as being a form of um, encouragement and success. Nowadays, right, if you are an employee at the business, right, instead of being excited about the entire business doing well, you tend to only care about your own salary and benefits. And I'm not here to argue whether one is right or wrong, right? I'm just saying this is the cultural shift that has occurred inside of our society. And with that, right, our chief motivators then, if they've moved to individualism, have also shifted on the institution of marriage. And marriage has shifted from this thing that has been focused on as being something for the good collectively of the family and the community to being much different. We ask questions like, from a future spouse, how will he or she meet my needs? How compatible are we? Do they make me feel loved? Do, do they do the things that I love? And my absolute just famous one, I'm looking for that person who just completes me, right? I'm, I'm looking for someone that can meet us. And, and with that come a ton of issues, Right, what happens when the person you're dating or the person you're engaged to or the person you've been married to for five years stops meeting those needs? What happens when your preferences on what that spouse is supposed to do change? What happens when their preferences change? What about when inevitably, if one of the things that predominantly drove your attraction to your spouse was physical and sexual in nature, that moves away because guess what? Gravity wins over time. It's undefeated. And this then becomes what Tim is talking about, saying our issue with marriage is that we carry unrealistic expectations and we carry an improper definition of why it exists in the first place. And the Bible has something very different to say about marriage, why it exists, 
and why we should desire it in the first place. So here's going to be our goal today, right? Three things. I'm, I'm, I hope that we will answer three questions this morning and you'll leave with, with this. Right? We're going to try to define the secret of marriage, right? What is this thing? Right? What, why, why do I want it? Why does it exist? What was God doing when he created it? We're going to talk about the mission of marriage, right? What is marriage supposed to do in us, right? Why does God encourage people to get married and what does he hope to do through it? And then we're going to talk about the power of marriage. How do we make it through marriage while fully understanding the, re the reality of what we're about to get into? So let's start diving into this, right? The biblical understanding of what is marriage in the first place. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 with me again that Holly read earlier, starting in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what we, what we see here in Ephesians 5, the end of this chapter, is Paul is giving us an understanding of how marriage is supposed to work and what it is. And these two verses, we see that Paul is quoting from the creation account inside the book of Genesis. So if you're familiar at all with the creation account, right, here's how it kind of breaks down. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates uh, the atmosphere. He creates day and night. He creates uh, plants. He creates uh, sea creatures. He creates animals. And then ultimately, he creates Adam. And consistently, as we see God like doing this throughout creation, we see God kind of say one thing consistently every time he's created something. It is good. He's like, I did it. Right? I did a great job. Check it out. And then when you get to Genesis chapter 2, and if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over there with me because I want you to see this. When you get to, to Genesis chapter 2, something happens, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Right? So see, see where things kind of start changing here? God's created. He said it's good over time. He places Adam in the garden and he says, you know what? It's not good for man to be alone. I will create a helper fit for him. All right, so there's two words there that I kind of want us to break down and look at. The first one is that word helper, right? Because I know, right, we live in 2021 and the moment right, we read that, the ladies recoil a little bit. Right? They're like, oh my gosh, like that's it? That's what God calls me as a helper? right? That's it. My entire job is just to serve, right? That's immediately the place we run to when we read that, right? But if we understand the Hebrew, right, that's not really what that word means, right? The Hebrew word for helper is this, this word ezer. And it's actually in the Old Testament, the most frequently used word to describe God when God helps the people of Israel, 
when God rescues Abraham, when God delivers the Israelites from Egypt, right? When it calls God a helper, that's the term that that the Hebrews used to understand God as their helper. Another example that we see throughout the Old Testament where that word is used is when military reinforcements arrive at a battle that was surely lost. So, ladies, that word helper is not negative. It is basically saying the human race was doomed until God made you. Now, biologically speaking, that's obvious. But it goes much deeper than that, right? That God is saying there's something beautiful about the way that men and women relate to one another and the help that they bring to one another that completes God's picture of what he wanted his creation to be, right? I love when my wife talks about this term when we're doing premarital counseling because she always says this. She's like, hey, that word helper, it has just such a, a negative connotation to it. She's like, and I'm not really sure how we arrived at that point because If you have young kids, what do they always want to do? Help. I use that term in quotations. But that's the desire of their heart. Hey, like yesterday, I was making my chili that turned into soup and didn't go well at the chili fest. Yes, laugh at my expense. It's okay. And all Gideon and Josiah wanted to do all morning was help me. It took me twice as long to finish that chili because of their help but they wanted to do that, right? They wanted to be involved, right? And be used and learn and grow. And when we look at this terminology, we see what God is trying to display to us is this isn't some subservient word being used to place women in their proper place, but it's actually saying, hey, without both, we've got a problem. The other word that he uses here is the, the... ESV translates it fit for him. And I don't really like that translation of the Hebrew. (laughs) Because what it literally means is like the opposite of him. And it would almost have this understanding or this idea of the way that magnets work. That opposites attract and come together and make a bond that's much stronger. Basically, the Hebrew is kind of trying to say this. Hey, everything that Adam is good at and everything that Adam is not good at Eve compliments, and that they work together, right, to bring this whole picture of God trying to place his image inside of human beings and declare his glory to the world he created. Kathy Keller put it this way in the chapter that she wrote in The Meaning of Marriage. She says, male and female are like opposite to one another. They're like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they are not alike nor randomly different. But they are differentiated such that together they can create a complete whole. Each sex is gifted for different steps in the great dance. See, Jackie and I, like so in my own marriage, Jackie and I have very different gifts. Some of you guys know us. I'm a risk taker right? And a giver, right? Like I would have bankrupted Jackie and I at least two or three times at this point, just giving our money away or investing it in something really dumb like Enron. Jackie, however, is like security all the time, you know? 
where, you know, even if we were in a one-bedroom apartment, she would want the $30,000 security system to protect our, you know, $600 worth of assets. Bringing that together, right, brings balance to the relationship so that we can honor God and sometimes take risks when God is asking us to and sometimes put a seatbelt on Kevin when need be. And in this, we help one another follow after Jesus and make much of him. And so we can ask ourselves this question, like, why is God doing this? Why is he designing marriage to be this way? And the answer is this, because God loves his creation and knows our need for community. Right, if you think back to when God made Adam, right, he's speaking to himself and he says, let us make man in our image and likeness. And one of the reasons we see that language specifically the way that we do in the Genesis creation account is we're seeing for the first time this theological idea of the Trinity being put on display for us. If you don't know anything about God, right, God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are one um, essence or being in three persons. And each one is fully God, but they're wrapped up in who God is. And what we learn about God and who he is as the Trinity is we see that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are in perfect community with one another. And in that perfect community, we see their love for one another. We see the way they serve and submit to one another in that community. And because God made Adam and Eve in his image and likeness, we are designed to reflect that community. And the relationship by which God most strongly reflects that design is the institution of marriage. That marriage is designed to show God's beautiful character and nature to the world around us. Now, I love this, right? Because here you have Adam. God says it's not good to be alone, right? And then so look what God does starting in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife both were naked and were not ashamed. See Adam's response? He breaks out in song and poetry. It's like, you did it, God! Yes! Eve is awesome! And it says that they are naked and unashamed. Amen. That there, that there is no sin, there's no judgment, there's no fighting, there's no irritation going on. They perfectly know one another and can live inside all of that awkwardness and confusion that doesn't exist because sin hasn't entered the world yet. And you get to Genesis chapter 3, and they ruin all of it. Right? Sin enters, and, the, and when you get to that moment, they know their nakedness. They know their shame, 
They begin to hurt one another. They begin to blame one another. I love that. I mean, Adam, what a wuss, right? He was the one, by the way, Eve's not even there yet when the mandate's given. God shows up. It's all Eve's fault and your fault, God. Right? This is what sin does. We start blame shifting and blaming anyone but other than holding responsibility for our own actions. And since then, since Genesis 3, marriage and its beauty in God's design has been marred by sin. And so we ask ourselves this question, right? What is marriage? What is the secret? Right? What, what is going on? And we say, well, marriage is a part of God's design for his people to understand the beauty of deep community and relationships. And with that, God's design is to use marriage to display some of his glory, both to those in the marriage and to those that see people that are married. And ultimately, what we're going to see is it's God's design to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. But because of sin, we, we face the reality of how all of this has been ruined because of rebellion and sin. But if we read verse 32 back in Ephesians chapter 5, look at what Paul says. He says, this mystery, referring to how marriage is designed and what's going on, is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's what Paul is saying. Yes, God created marriage. Yes, God designed it for his glory. Yes, human beings have screwed that up because of sin. God still wants marriage to exist, and here's why. Because it's going to reflect the glory of the gospel. It reflects Jesus and his church to the world around us. Which inevitably brings us to the question, well, how? How in the world can marriage possibly do that? And it has to do with the mission of marriage and what God wants to do in us through it. Look at verses 22 through 27 with me of Ephesians 5. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Right, look at that last line again that I just read. What is the mission of marriage? What does God want to do in us through marriage? It says, so that you might be presented in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, holy, without blemish. See, Paul is sharing with us this is the mission of marriage, our sanctification. God wants to use marriage 
to convict us of sin, to call us to repentance so that we might experience the grace and forgiveness of our spouse, but also more importantly, our God. And in that, be made more like Jesus. Let me share with you an example from my own marriage about how this works out. So my family has generational sin in it. All of the women, so my wife, uh, my, my mother, and my grandmother all have this like running inside joke of something they call and refer to as the Anderson temper. Means all the men in the Anderson side of the family struggle to control their emotions and anger. And, and just so you guys understand how bad this is, because I think you probably are going to think like, oh, Kevin's just kind of like using this as an example, and, you know, he's just trying to sell this. I once went to a conference of pastors. It was a small cohort of about eight of us, and we went through a book called um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. Really, really good book for those of you guys that are like me. Um, super, super helpful to help you kind of understand why you think and feel the way you do and how God wants to redeem that. So they did this uh, exercise where they presented like five or six scenarios to us that might be stressful as a pastor and how we responded to it. And I'm done within like two minutes. Everyone else is like sitting there and they're writing things down or whatever else. And finally, they asked me first because I can just tell the guy leading this knows this guy's a problem. He's like, Kevin, like what, what did you see? And like, what did you feel? I was like, anger, all of it angry at every single one of these. And he's like, really? Like someone dying? You're angry about that? Like, yeah. And I kid you not, he looks at me and says, you are the most emotionally immature pastor I think I've ever met in my life. I'm like, thank you. You hardly know me. <laughs> like, Right, but what I've learned is that over the years, this was displayed to me. It was learned behavior. It's the way I've learned with stressors, right? That in my family, emotions were suppressed and we were told to respond in certain ways and we weren't allowed to be sad about things or upset about things or, or whatever else. And so when you, when you think you can't control those emo emotions, what happens? You become angry, right? Because you get mad at yourself, because you're displaying emotions that your parents are going to yell at you for, or your grandparents are going to yell at you for. And over time, you just learn to respond to every stressor with anger, right? I'll let you guess whether God likes that or not. No, right? So here's God's redemptive plan for Kevin. Bring an emotionally mature adult into his life, have them get married, and then have him be held to a standard. And over time, as Jackie loved me well, right, and as we worked through issues and complications in our marriage, right, I came to realize that I had a lot of things I needed to work on. And that my issues ran deep. And that I needed to confess that sin and repent of that sin. And more and more over time, I've learned that emotions are actually given by God to help me understand something about what's going on in a situation and how I feel about it, and then to process through that and to grow with them. And I only learned that because I was in a relationship with someone where we had committed to one another to walk through the highs and the lows of life with one another.
See, God cares so much about you, and he loves you so much. I think we have this view of the gospel in the United States as being, God loves you so much that he just loves you where you're at, and he wants you to stay the same. The gospel's better than that. God loves you so much that he meets you where you're at, but he also wants to change you and make you more into the, into the image and likeness of his son. He loves you enough not to let you to stay the same way. And marriage is one of the avenues that God uses to do this. And he does this exactly how Paul describes it in Ephesians 5. Mutual submission to one another. I know if you're a lady in this room this morning and you're reading those first couple verses that I read, you just, again, coil up, right? Submit? That word's terrible. Why would I do that? Let me first point this out to you. Read the next part. If you're asked to submit to a guy, right, and submit to your husband and fall out of his leadership, look at what the husband is called to do. He's called to even hire a form of submission to where he would lay down his very life for your good. But in this, right, what we actually see is that the role of the wife in mutual submission and the role of the husband in mutual submission is actual, actually a beautiful two-part reflection of the very character and nature of Jesus himself. Wives, think about this. When, Jesus, when you are asked to submit to your husband, think about Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and followed the Father's plan to come to earth, take on human flesh, and submit to, to, to persecution and death, even death on a cross. And he willingly and lovingly followed the Father's plan. A wife that submits to her husband and his leadership reflects the glory of Christ because it's the very thing that Christ did to the Father. It's not something to be angry or despised. It's a beautiful gift of God for you to reflect the glory of your creator. Men, when God says to us that we are to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Here is what he's saying to us. We get the privilege of loving our wives, placing their needs above our own, running after them to serve them and love them even to the point of death, death on a cross, so that we might reflect the glory of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul is able to say in verse 32 that this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul calls marriage a mystery because we won't instinctively get this. But the same way that Christ proclaimed the good news of his kingdom and what he's going to do, the same way that the church proclaims the good news of what Christ has done, a biblical marriage that displays mutual submission and love to one another. Forgiveness and service to one another. That marriage displays a picture 
of God's glory to the world around us. When I think about who I was in middle school and high school and many of the friends that I had, looking back on it, I always think to myself, why were there certain houses in certain places that we wanted to stay as a group of friends? Like, why was that? And when I think back to that as a kid who didn't know Jesus, didn't know anything about the gospel, I think back to why we were ultimately there. It was usually the way the family unit was. And in that, we got to experience the love of the husband and the wife and what they had for one another inside of their marriage. And that caused us to feel comfortable. It caused us to feel loved and secure. And it displayed a beauty to us where there was a group of about eight of us that were friends from about second grade all the way through high school. And we hung out at the same two houses out of our group of friends because of the beauty of those marriages and how they reflected God's love for his church. And marriages that do this display the gospel to a middle school kid who has no clue who Jesus is without ever actually sharing the four spiritual laws, Romans Road, knowing God personally, evangelism explosion, whatever your favorite Bible tract or evangelism tract is, it displays the glory of God and who he is. And so therefore, marriage is designed to do two things. The mission of marriage is to see two things done. Change you so that you might become more like Jesus. And if we understand that, the cultural notion of trying to find somebody that loves you or completes you or does all the things you like needs to be destroyed. Because one of the reasons why, you know, I'm, we have a lot of young people here. So young people, get ready to get called out right now. Sorry. I'll sit down and talk with you guys and we'll get to talking. And if I get to know you or you're a part of my gospel community, right? And the, these topics come up and they'll be like, oh, like, you know, like, yeah, I really want to be married. I'm like, cool, like, so what are you looking for? And like, this is almost always the answer I get. Well, I've got this list of like 75 things that he needs to be, right? Even this past week, right, I was doing premarital counseling with Charlotte and Gabe. Charlotte, I'm getting ready to call you out. I'm sorry. She's like, yeah, I have this tiered list. I'm like, okay, right? And as they, they work through it, they're, they're okay. They understand what the role of the list is, Right? But the moment I heard that, a little part of me recoiled because I'm like, uh-oh, Gabe is never going to meet that list standard. And there's no human being on this planet that likely is going to meet everything. I mean, some of you guys, your lists crack me up. Like, oh, I just want a guy that's six foot one. He's going to take care of his body and weigh 175 pounds. He's going to make enough for me to stay home all the time with the kids and we're never going to be tired. We're going to go on vacations every six months that cost thousands of dollars. And we're going to have a 3,000 square foot house. And just all these things start getting listed. And I'm like, okay, like it's, it's cool to dream. That's a pipe dream, but it's cool to dream. But nothing about that is in God's design for you and what he wants marriage to be. And the moment you start viewing marriage as being that thing to fulfill those dreams and those ideas, inevitably, when marriage doesn't match up to that, 
Instead of becoming a beautiful endeavor that God has created to change you and make you more like his son and to declare the glory of the gospel, it becomes a miserable endeavor that ruins your life and you're stuck with this person and can't figure out how to get out of it. And guys, this is why divorce is rampant. Because you marry someone for the wrong reasons. This doesn't even mean you don't love that person. This doesn't mean you're not attracted to this person. This doesn't mean that that person's not great. But if we go into marriage not understanding its design and what its intention is, you're going to be sorely disappointed by that person and yourself. So marriage is designed for our good and our sanctification and to declare the beauty of Christ and what he's done through you and your spouse. And the problem is, sin messes that up even when we know what the design is. And so the question we then need to ask ourselves, if we know what marriage is designed for, we know what it's supposed to do in us, how can we possibly do that knowing two sinners are going to be getting married to one another and it's probably going to be messy sometimes? And I'm always struck by Jesus' teaching on the reality of marriage in Matthew chapter 19. Turn over there real quick with me. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. All right, so see what they're doing. They're trying to back Jesus into a corner, figure out, hey, like, you're saying that divorce is bad, but Moses said it was okay. And he's like, yeah, you guys don't get it. It's your hardness of heart that led Moses to allow you to send a divorce, to send your wife away in a divorce, but not because God wanted this to happen. Then I love this. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. I love the disciples. Right, like, read that. You're like, hey, Jesus, if you're really saying we're supposed to figure it out with our spouses no matter what, it's better to remain single. Because that sounds really, really hard. Yes, it is. Right? Marriage is not all rainbows and butterflies. It's not what the movies tell you it is. It's not. It doesn't mean it's not beautiful. And there are moments in marriage that even reflect that beautifully. And it is that mountaintop experience. But I, I tell every couple we do premarital counseling with, you guys are in the honeymoon stage. You just don't get it yet. But you'll, you'll remember things we're talking about now, two weeks from now, six months from now, or two years from now. 
And this is when you'll start applying the stuff that we're talking about because the honeymoon phase will end. He seems really cute now when he doesn't clean up after himself, ladies. It's not so cute after year two. She seems really loving and caring when she's constantly coming behind you and correcting your mistakes. That gets real old after a while. And when you commit to one another, you have to figure out how to work through that. And so the disciples see this and they're like, well, that standard sucks. Why would anyone sign up for that? And I love Jesus' response, right? He doesn't go into a, a, a long talk about the beauty of marriage. Look at what he says. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Anybody receive that? Yeah, that's what I thought. Right? Here's, here's what Jesus is saying. If you don't know what a eunuch is, a single person, and I'll leave it at that. Okay? Here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, some people are born from birth, and they're going to be single for a number of reasons. Biologically, personality-wise, maybe disability, whatever it may be. Right? They're going to be single from birth. Some people end up being single because of something that happens in their life somewhere along the way. Maybe it's family trauma. Maybe it's an issue that cropped up. Maybe it's some sort of disability that cropped up later in life, and it's connected to someone else. But that, that is why. And he says the third reason that some people remain single their entire life is because they choose to do so for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Tracking with me so far? Now, here's the reality. 90 plus percent of us don't meet any of those standards for singleness, meaning the vast majority of people aren't going to be single. So here's what Jesus is saying. Yeah, you guys aren't going to be single. You don't meet any of these reasons for why God gives the gift of singleness to somebody. Therefore, you better learn to figure this out instead. You better learn my design for marriage. You better learn how to love and forgive and show grace to one another because you are not designed for singleness and singleness will be just as miserable and problematic for you as that difficult marriage. And look, it can be hard but not impossible, like the disciples think. Right? God gives us four tools for being able to process through marriage. Right? The first one we already talked about, Ephesians 5.21, that idea of mutual submission to one another. Right? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That Christians are supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and that carries over into marriage. Now, it, has, it looks a very specific way inside of marriage, but mutual submission is one of the tools that God gives us to help us overcome the reality of the difficulties and sinfulness that is in marriage. Wives, respect, submit, serve your husbands. Husbands, respect, submit, serve your wives. Hard, yes, but Jesus is our example of this. Right, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus emptied himself, submitted to the Father, and then served and submitted for our sake to save us from death and separation from the Father. And that we can follow his example 
and be motivated by it to choose to love and serve and forgive and show grace to our spouses even when they don't deserve it because Jesus first loved, served, submitted, and forgave us. Well, great, what about when I don't do that? What about when we're not mutually submitting to one another? What about when one is but one isn't? That's when we look to Jesus as our example to sinners, where Jesus is the perfect example of truth, love, and grace. Right? God gives married couples the ability to share truth with one another. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Marriage is called to be a place of authenticity, a place where both spouses need to be able to be honest with one another about the reality of the other spouse's behavior and what their life is like. And you need to be called out and corrected by people that know you and love you. And if marriage is, if, if marriage is the place that's operating properly, there's no better place to be called out than by your spouse. Because that person has covenanted and promised you that they're going to stick it out with you even though you're messed up. Like, let me give you an example, and I have Jackie's permission to share this story. So most of you guys that know Jackie, if you, like, observe the two of our lives over the course of time, you'd be like, why in the world did that woman ever choose to marry him? He's a mess. He would rather just get into trouble than ask for forgiveness later. Jackie, she's a performer, right? She knows God's commands. She's been walking with Jesus for a long time. She tends to, on the whole, right, honor God very frequently with the way she lives her life. But Jackie is not perfect. And at times, she sins against me or against our children. And one of the things that the Lord has been working on in Jackie since we got married is that when she does sin against us, she needs to own up to it. And she struggles with that. Like my wife has this famous tendency to sin against you, not say anything, and then just like serve you like crazy for like two weeks as like a repayment for what she did to you. And so a couple years ago, Jackie did something. I won't go into the specifics of what she did, but I was pretty frustrated and angry. And very rarely um, am, is she the one to be most of the reason for the blame of any sort of conflict that arises in our marriage. But this time, I think it was fair to say that she probably had a little bit more to play in it. And she's serving me and all these things, and I'm still upset and angry, and that was my own thing to deal with, right? But she's like, you've been cranky for like two days. Like, whatever. And I'm like, how dare you? And so we're sitting down, and she's, and, I, and she's like saying, like, I've been doing all these things, and I just feel like I'm not getting any thanks for it. And I was like, I'm mad at you because of what you did three days ago, and you never said I'm sorry. She's like, well, you know, and just, but I did this, I did that. Can't you just say sorry? Can't you just say, Kevin, I messed up. I sinned against you. I apologize. Please forgive me. She didn't like that very much. But guess what? We walked away, let some time settle. The Holy Spirit was at work. She came back. She's like, you know what? You're right. I really struggle with this. I really struggle to own my sin and to be honest because I hate failure. I hate, I hate not matching up to the standard. I hate, I hate owning that. 
but will you forgive me? And guess what? Because Jesus first forgave me, guess what I was required to do? Forgive her. Did that mean I liked it? No. But I was required and compelled by the love of Christ to forgive my wife. And guess what Jackie's done over the course of time? In that space, there became a freedom for her to be real and authentic, not just with me, but with herself. And that when she messes up, she knows that grace is going to be displayed to her, both through Christ's example and through mine. And it's liberated her to repent. But marriage first has to be a place where we will actually call one another out on our junk. Now, not only is truth one of the tools that God gives us, but love is. Right? Let's go to the famous love passage, right? 1 Corinthians 13. Some of you guys will put this in your wedding. Even though it is a passage on the church. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and look at that last one, endures all things. Guys, if there has been the bastardization of a word in the English language more than love, I would love to find it. Yes, your pastor just said a bad word. Sorry. Right, that word has been hijacked. But this is God's definition of what love is. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not an affection. It's not sex. It's not hormones raging out of control. Look at every single description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast. It's not irritable or resentful, does not insist on its own way, does not rejoice in wrongdoing, rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See a consistent theme there? It's not a feeling. It's a choice. It's an action. It's you choosing to do something despite the other person's behavior and performance. I choose not to boast, even though I should. I choose not to envy you, even though I want to. I choose not to hold this wrong against you, even though I could. And just as Jesus chose to love us despite our failings and shortcomings, we choose to love others even when they don't deserve it. Because God has freed us in Christ to do so. Lastly, God gives us the tool of grace, specifically the grace of Christ. Knowing that you have been forgiven by Jesus for every sin you have committed, past, present, and future, that can empower you to forgive a spouse when they've wronged you. You know, see, the beauty of seeing grace play out in a relationship is kind of like this. I think the number one thing that should drive you to marry somebody is not how much compatibility you have or good looks or common interests. 
but you should be able to look at that person and see what God is doing in their life and say, you know what, I want to be a part of that. As a matter of fact, I want to be used by God to be a part of that. I can see where the Holy Spirit is taking that man or woman, and I want to go along for the ride. I want to be a part of that. And when you see what God is doing in the life of your spouse, we can see that hurt that they've brought, and we can forgive them because we know this, God is not done with them. God's forgiven them. How could we not? God's forgiven me. How could I not forgive them? And we call on the Holy Spirit to help us walk these things out in his power so that we might make much of him. So what have we seen this morning? As Paul has laid out this design for marriage, we see that marriage is designed and purposed because God has created it and he's created it for our good and his glory. And that's wrapped up in the mission of marriage, that God has designed it not only to display and reflect his glory, but also to change you and sanctify you so that you might become more like Jesus. Which means if you don't want to change, don't get married. Because the very institution itself is designed to change you. And then we see that God empowers us to then live that mission out through mutual submission and by following Christ's example of being truthful, loving, and gracious to one another. And so how do we respond to all of this? We see see God's grand design for all of this. How do we respond to it? Well, the first thing I would say is this. Many of us in this room have false views of marriage that we need to repent of. You've you've let Disney be your primary discipler or the bachelor or the bachelorette or whatever other terrible cultural thing you want to do. Marriage is not going to complete you and there is no such thing as a soulmate. There's not. It just does not exist. And if you're dating somebody and you're in a relationship and you're thinking that, I would encourage you to break up until you can hit the reset button on your relationship. That's really mean, Kevin. Marriage is worse with somebody you're not supposed to marry. I would rather you hate me now and be happy five years from now and for the rest of your life walking out God's design for you than lying to you and letting you stay in something that's actually not for your good. That's the beauty of truth. That's the beauty of what Christ does is he tells us what is true about us even if we don't like it. Because here's the reality. The thing we most deeply long for most of the time and we seek in marriage Only God can give you. If Jackie's looking for all the affirmation and affection and acceptance and love and forgiveness and grace that she has been wired for by God himself in me, she's going to be miserable. I can't do that. But if we repent of our false view, if we seek to learn more about God's design and pray, for help to follow him, that is where we can rest, we can grow, 
And in Christ, we can experience the beauty and joy of God's design for marriage. So if you're here this morning and you're single, here's my charge to you. Instead of creating a list of what your spouse is supposed to look like, spend time really studying the Bible and what God says about marriage. Study what God's design is so that you know what to look for. And ask God to be working on you and be praying for your future spouse that God is doing the same in him or her. If you're married here this morning, repent to your spouse this morning of where you're falling short about what we talked about this morning. Confess your sin to them and then forgive one another just as God has forgiven you in Christ. And then seek to live this out, to call one another out on your sin in authenticity, to love one another as Christ loved you, to serve one another, and to choose to love even despite your failings, committed to see your spouse become more like Jesus. Your spouse is not there for your glory, they're there for Jesus's. And commit to helping them flourish in that. And if we'll do that, church, both single and married, we will experience and taste God's love for us in a way that we never dared imagine. Right? Tim Keller says this in talking about both marriage relationships, and ultimately Christ's love for us. Listen to this. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. If you are a disciple of Jesus here this morning, you are fully known and fully loved. And God's desire for you is that your marriage can reflect that and give you a foretaste of the beauty of God's love for you in Christ. And not only does it give you a foretaste, but God's love empowers you so that you can live liberated from your own selfishness, humbled out of your own self-centeredness, and grow and endure to persevere by faith all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray that he might make that a reality for us.